This is Gramercy, the podcast that highlights the stories of those who live and work on the margins of society. I'm your host, Corey Malad. Thank you for coming on this journey with me. Welcome to Season 3. This season, you will get the privilege of meeting the formerly incarcerated and those who mentor, employ, and restore hope into their lives. I am partnering with Defy Ventures to bring you this dynamic series that will teach us what the journey looks like for life after prison. This is a compelling story you won't soon forget. Andy Lopez, my guest today, grew up in New York City as a first-generation American from a tight-knit Dominican Republic family and neighborhood. He adores his mother, who single-handedly raised him and his five brothers. Gang life was the only life. He lived by the street code. Andy paints a vivid picture that gives us deeper insight into what attracts kids on the street to this type of lifestyle. Andy eventually served two stints in prison, the first for four years and the second for 12. Ultimately, Andy chose to drop the flag of gang life during his second prison term and refocused all that energy into achieving his associate's degree through NYU's prison education program. He currently resides in California with his brother and is working on finishing his bachelor's degree in restorative justice. I have no doubt that Andy's incredible, beautiful light will touch many people in this world as he shares his gift of compassion and empathy with everyone he encounters. Andy, thank you so much for taking time out of your day to be with me and tell me your story. I am so excited to learn about your life. Um, first of all, I just want to thank you for opening the door for certain people in the world to say their stories. Um, a lot of people in the world think their story is not significant, um, but True. anybody's little piece, anybody's little story could touch a life. And we have so many ways that our stories might be different, but we have so many ways where our stories are so similar because trauma, pain, hate, love all these feelings insist in every story you just got to look a little bit deeper in some or see that because it wasn't so dramatic it doesn't mean there wasn't pain it doesn't mean there wasn't um discomfort or they were ignored well you're already starting off with such inspiration and wisdom i mean where do we go from here that's awesome yes we are all connected beautifully aren't we um i love it already well, let me ask you an easy question just to kind of grease the skids. If we had a time machine and we could travel anywhere in the world at any time in history, what would you pick and why? Um, I think I would have picked a little bit um, the Wild Wild West. Even really? Though, yes, even though I love reading Western and knowing that People my color were not portrayed so great in it, but I would have loved the Western because it still gave you a little bit of power in your hand 
to make more decisions. It wasn't other people making so much decision because it was so open. It could be you could go to an area where nobody lived and you could become part. And it was like the world still was, in my eyes, beliefs, like people still had open heart, even though it was a lot of despair, even though it was a lot of time where people didn't know what was going on. I think there was still more unity in the world at that time. Wow, what an interesting perspective. You're right, there were not as many confines at that time, right? More people, I like how you said they had more freedom. I can see that. That's really fascinating. See, that's just the beautiful thing of seeing the world through people, other people's eyes. I hadn't ever given it that much thought, and apparently you have. <laughs> yeah. I am, uh, what the Beatles song says, I'm one of those that's always imagining. So yes, I'm always in my head. I'm always a dreamer. That was my playground. That is my escape. My head is where I go. And fantasy or what people seem like it wasn't reality. It was Uh my reality to escape a lot of my reality. Wow. So was it kind of like a mechanism that helped you survive, especially your years in prison or as a child? My years in prison, my years as a child, with my insecurity—I don't think it was an escape mechanism. I think it was a gift that I have. Oh, that's good. My imagination of being able to just escape, but being able to picture things in different ways. So that's why it's like I'm able to take people's story and people's life and try to walk in their shoes and see sometimes the suffering and the pain with. You'll be like, this person came from a nice privileged house. He never suffered. Nothing. But then I put myself in that shoe and be like, well, how does it feel to come from a world where everybody thinks that you had it all right? Where mm-hmm. financially it looked like it was great, but you never got a hug from the person that you just wanted it the most. Mm-hmm. And they get material things, but those material things never meant to nothing. My way of imagining and to see, put myself in different position and become a different person. So I think it was a gift because while I was incarcerated, I found out, and I still haven't been um, clinically proved it yet, but I read this book called The Gift of Dyslexia, and it opened my world so much. And it got something to also do with the way that I learn. Mm-hmm. So you found out pretty late that you had dyslexia. You didn't know that in school growing up. I didn't know that in school and I still can't prove it. So going back, I'm back in school right now. I'm in college. I can't get the things that are offered to a person that has dyslexia because I still haven't been proved by Mm -hmm. somebody professionally, clinically that I'm dyslexic. But But you know. Oh, yeah, because um, in prison, I was trying to find out that I was dyslexic and they would have not helped me. So I had to go through writing letters to trying to get tested. When I did get tested, they just diagnosed me that I needed more time when it came to testing. But how I found the book was through the librarian. And she went on the Internet and downloaded a test for parents that wanted to find out if their kids are dyslexic. Mm-hmm. I passed the test with flying colors. So mm-hmm. that was. And mm-hmm. ever since I've seen it, I mean, and the reason why I was a teacher's A in prison and she found out because her, her daughter works with a disabled kid and she's a professional teacher. And she was like, 
when she used to ask me for a number, I used to say, instead of saying 23 with the number that I was seeing, I'll say 32. And then I'll catch myself and I'll be like, no, I mean 23. Man, I've, I've read that dyslexic um, people actually are much smarter than people give them credit for because they're memorizing and have to keep so much in their heads because they're always trying to correct themselves. And so they have a massive memory. I bet you have a very good memory. Yes. And that's how I learned how to spell. So if I couldn't take a picture of the word, I used to take pictures of the word. Um, my issue with my dyslexia is putting vowels together. Oh. Also, if we read a word that we can't put a picture, it becomes, sometimes we could pronounce the word like dud and a, I could pronounce those words, but it becomes like a barrier for me to pronounce the next word that comes mm. out because I can't put a picture. So we always in our head are trying to pit, um, for what the books say, are trying to paint pictures. Mm -hmm. That works so well with your big imagination. Those two yeah. meld together perfectly, don't they? Yeah. Would you mind sharing a little bit of what it was like growing up being you, some of your most wonderful positive memories and some of the struggles that you went through that shaped your character? Yes, um, and, um, I haven't mentioned, I'm a first generation American. Oh, are you? Um, Where are your parents from? From the Dominican Republic, a little island in the Caribbean. It's a very culture that I grew up very close to, and it was a culture that's very friendly. And most of the time, me being a first generation American, the area that I moved into, there was not a lot of Dominicans. It was more Puerto Rican. We speak Spanish, there's always a little collapse because it's new people come into the area that you already had lived in and they come in and it seems like they've taken the job, they've taken the place and it seems like they've taken over. So it, it was a little bit rough, but they were also acceptable because there were so much similarities, our little islands being in the Caribbean. Mm -hmm. Is there much difference in the dialect of Spanish that you guys speak? No, we, um, Cubans, Dominicans, and Puerto Rican, their dialects sound very similar. So okay. you'll notice people might say that Dominicans, we make our own language. Our language is always changing. It's almost like we talk slang with everything. So Oh, how funny. And it sounds so different than other people, but it's still the same. But we make, we just make our own words. So it's yeah. almost people from South America and Central America, some of the words that we use will mean different things to them that would mean to us. Mm -hmm. So your parents moved here. They immigrated to the States, obviously up to New York. Did they integrate well? Did they have a positive experience? Did they have a negative experience? Did they learn English? Did you only speak English or Spanish at home? I've heard both. Some people, when they immigrate, they tell their kids, you will only speak English here. And some say they want to keep their culture alive. And so they continue both languages. What was your experience? Um, so my experience was my mom, to this day, she only speaks a few words in English. Mm -hmm. My mom was not able to go to school in the Dominican Republic because... Really? Yes, at that time, um, it wasn't a place for a woman. Basically, mm -hmm. that's what it was. My mom, um, school started when she was 11 years old, the little um, part of the Dominican Republic she was. She's from, more from a little mountain area. And 
School started when she was 11. For the story that she told me, she went to school for a week. Um, my grandfather found out that she was in school and pulled her to the side and said, that's not a place for a lady. A place oh. for a lady is the house and you're not gonna go to the school and get pregnant. So your place is gonna be in this place. My mom's was trained to take care of a house and to be a housewife since she was five years old. Goodness. And so how many siblings did you have? With me is six. My mom has six boys. Um, she and my father have five children. My father ended up having three more children. But um, after he walked away from my mother and left her home in this country where she didn't know the language, she didn't know how to travel. But yeah, my mom had six boys. Wow. So... She was a very strong woman. I bet you admire her greatly. Yes. Anything good that you see in me today and anything good that you hear coming out of my life is her. Everything, like, she taught, the lesson she taught me helped me survive in any way of life that I choose to live or any way of life that I thought that I could only live. Because from little, we seen her give homeless people, a single woman, with little kids, give homeless people water and food and told us, it's something that Dominican people say, you don't deny water and food to nobody, mm. no matter what. So she grew up like that. Yeah, we didn't grow up having exclusive food all the time, but rice and bean would keep the belly full and it was something that mm -hmm. it was cheap and she was able to buy. But I'll tell you, when I was young, I was a picky eater. I was tired of rising and bee. I, I, I used to love going to other friends' house and just, but I was so super shy that I would not eat in other places. Really? I was so scared to even say a word. So it's so funny that now I'm an active extrovert. Mm -hmm. While I was like, oh, wait, and that's what it comes. I was always in my head. Mm -hmm. So birth order, where did you fall amongst your brothers? So birth order, I fall into the middle child because it's six, because I am the fourth one. Okay. So it's like I share that, that position. And the brother that I do share the position, almost we almost look so much alike. You will, you will be able to tell the difference right away because he's 6'3", I'm 5'10". Oh, really? Yes, our features are so much alike. And do you still get along with all your brothers? Have, or have you spread out across the country? What do those relationships look like nowadays? Um, I do get along with my brother. I am probably the nucleus of the family. I'm the one that everybody runs to and talks to. Nice. And everybody has this view. And I think it's a gift that was given to me by my moms because she's the nucleus of her generation where everybody mm -hmm. goes to eat, always has to talk, and always finds a way to connect. And I think that's what makes me so easy to deal with because empathy. My mom always showed us so much empathy for everything. I can mm. tell you a story about one time we sitting in a balcony and we watching, um, the, we watching the stars at night. But while we watching the stars at night, two men are robbing another man. And my mom is seeing this and starts crying. And I'm like, mom, why are you crying? She's like, because I could picture the pain that the mother's feeling of her son getting robbed. And I could see that happening to one of y'all. And it was something that moved me to this day. And I can never forget that story mm -hmm. because it showed me how much compassion my mom had 
that she could feel the pain of a stranger, but mm-hmm. just the pain of a mother knowing that what her child was going through at the moment. What a gift to pass down to you, huh? That gift of empathy and compassion towards complete strangers. That's awesome. At one time, I thought it was a curse. <laughs> I imagine you probably felt it made you weaker in some sense. Yeah, especially growing up in New York City, that it's a city where it's kind of rough. And mm-hmm. sometimes people decide that, oh, it's not just New York City. It's the world that we're living in now that it's your survival. And they, maybe you can help somebody else, but you go first. And it was like me always being caring and stuff like that. Um, Mm-hmm. The years that I spent in prison, that was my gift that made me connect with everybody. Oh, I love how you are framing this as a gift. I want to hear more about it. What yeah. Could you walk us through what led up to the incident that led you to eventually be incarcerated? Oh, yes. Um, so I was incarcerated first when I was um 18 and that was because a friend owed me money and he was like come on this guy been selling drugs all day let's go get the money that i owe you for him and i need some more money um we decided uh take the money from the guy we left the guy called the police and said we robbed him i mean we thought it wasn't going to be nothing it was a drug dealer then i lived by the street coast so i decided that i was going to take the blame my friend he already has done time in prison, some juvenile, he already had made decisions wrong, and I wanted to free him. Well, he went and was scared that, because I'd never been incarcerated, that I was not going to be able to hold water. So he ended up telling on us, and I ended up getting more time than him, a person without no record. Oh, no. So, yeah, I did those four years, but at the same time, younger than that um, incident happened when I was 16. Um, the girl that I first fell in love when I was 13, and we always talked about having a child, had got an abortion. And that broke me because I always wanted like to be a father because I never had one. Mm-hmm. But that made me decide to live the street life. Mm-hmm. And... I decided to live the street life also because it was something that was prophesied over me in school. See, um, before we get deeper, I wanted to start with school was the place where I learned that I was black, that I learned that I didn't fit in, that I learned that I wasn't good enough to be almost anything. I wasn't good enough to be an American because I was first generation. I wasn't good enough to be Dominican because I didn't know too much of the culture over there because I was born over here. So even though I spoke the language like I came from over there, Spanish, I wasn't able to communicate because when they would talk about certain things and certain way of growing up in that culture in the Dominican Republic, I couldn't relate to. So That just breaks my heart, Andy, right now. I'm just sitting here just... My heart is so heavy that the first place you learned that you didn't fit in was in school. I hate that. I hate that you were given labels that you felt, well, this is who I am. This is who I have to become. That shows the power and importance of words and what people speak over you and how vulnerable kids are to what adults say. 
Oh, even even with all the love and compassion and empathy your mom is pouring into you, those words were still louder in your head? They became louder. At first, it was a fight. At first, I was going to fight it because something my mom always told us, bootstrap. The harder you work, the things you can change. But I always had like a rebellion spirit, you could say. So since... I was young, it was always, and school was where I learned, had my first taste of violence too, and learned that I was poor. Because in my house, everything I had was okay. I I was never missing nothing. I had little toys, but they were all great to me. When I, um, an incident happened when I was six. Um, the apartment that we lived in, it was um, almost like a slum, where it had the bathroom in the middle, and it was, all six, we lived in one bedroom apartment that ended up being turned into two. Um, they oh made my. a bathroom inside it. So it was almost like an illegal apartment, but it was, I think, like 15 floors. There was a restaurant under, but the story that I had heard was the light bulb ended up popping up and it ended up catching fire. We was directly right under it, so all the smoke was coming up. My mom ended up waking up, got us all up out the house, and she decided to go around the whole building trying to help people to wake him up. So the second floor neighbor, he put us in his van that he used to have because he used to work for a grocery um, moving products. And we stayed the night in there. My mom ended up collapsing because of the smoke she took in. They took her to the ambulance. Um, they gave her oxygen, but they let her go that same day. And all her mind was, I got to get my children to school. My mom knowing little and smelling all that smoke, she put the clothes on us. Well, it almost smelled like we were smoke meat. And I couldn't smell the smell because I had smelled smoke all night. So now I get to school and the first thing everybody starts telling me is you stink. Oh, the kids could be cruel because it's innocent cruel, but they were telling me, get away, you stink. Um, And for another thing is, I went, my mom waited until I turned six years old to put me in school because my brother was five, so she didn't want to separate us, so she kept me in a babysitter. I stayed with the babysitter, and then my mom decided to put me into school first grade, and my brother went to kindergarten because she didn't want to separate us. So now when I do get into school, they put me in a class that's a second grade and first grade class. So luckily, that's why I think they never end up finding out that I was dyslexic. Mm-hmm. So now... Spanish was the main language I speak at home. I learned how to speak words in English before school by Sesame Street. So the little little English that I knew was Sesame Street. And my brothers had arrived from DR when I was five because three of them were born in the Dominican Republic. Wow. I was the first one born here. So the only brother that I really knew was the one that was a year younger than me because the other ones were in the Dominican Republic. I only remember going twice before they came to this country. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, so now they're battling um, being immigrants while I'm battling being a first generation. So they were able to fit with the other Dominican kids that had come from um, the Dominican Republic because they knew the lifestyle over there. But me, I wasn't able to fit with them or with anybody. So it always felt like I was an outsider. But the incident that happened that day in school, I go to school smelling like smoke. The kids are making fun of me. The teacher decides 
is the middle of winter around February in New York City, decides to put me to a op- close to an open window. Oh, I was no. the whole time in class and the kids kept making fun of me. Out of nowhere, a rage of anger came out of me and I ended up punching one of the kids in the face and everything stopped. The making fun of me, mm-hmm. the bothering me stops and everybody just leaves me alone. I learned a lesson that day that anytime I was in the corner, anytime I was feeling some kind of pain, anytime somebody was putting me in a place of discomfort, violent will stop everything. Uh, and so I became almost like a little firecracker, I could say. Anytime somebody would light me up, I was ready just to fire off. And it was like a lesson that my brothers had taught me that they learned in school coming to this country was, um, whenever you get into an argument, the first punch could be the last punch. So that stayed with me. Anytime I was able to get into an argument, it was like I was picturing in my imagination what could go the worst, so I will react first. What a difference one person could have made by being kind to you. What a difference one teacher could have made by sticking up for you. I'm sorry that didn't happen for you. I'm sorry you learned the lesson of aggression or just that you felt that you didn't fit in. That's just, I can't imagine growing up with that pain and that, that self-understanding at such a young age. And I think that's the gift that gave me the reason to see in other people's pain, the reason to try to connect with other people because everybody sees something so different. And then growing up in my life, I end up meeting people that did take out their ways, that said, oh, this kid ain't bad. Oh, this kid ain't dumb. You are super smart. You just a little bit full of anger, a little bit of this. And that's how I end up um, turning into um, looking also for people that were fighting injustice, but were more like me. It was hard to find history books, and then I couldn't read Spanish. I could, I could speak it, but I can't read it or write it. And I'm already having difficulty learning how to read English because of my um, a learning disorder. Or I don't even call it a learning disorder. I just call it that I learn different. Yes. It's just being a lefty yes. in a righty's world. Yeah, we all understand things in a unique way. And you don't have to put a label on it. You're right. You just understand and learn differently. And, and I like how you see it as a gift because it causes you to look at others and yourself with more compassion. So that is totally a gift. And it built compassion where I was able to connect and have friends in every different lifestyle. And, but the damage that was done was done already because when I used to meet kids that used to get bullied, I was their defender, but I always used to tell them these words. It's like, um, when you start your own company, when you get a job, will you hire me? And it gets me a little emotional because at a young age, me saying, will you hire me when I come out of prison? Really? Because I was told that that's where I would end up. Prison or death were the only ways that I was going to end did you have that understanding of the like school to prison pipeline that so many people talk about, or can you see it? Like when you look back, can you see how that totally is true or 
you were just muddled in the everyday, just trying to survive day to day. Is that what it was? Um, I didn't see it because to us, prison was something just normal when I started growing up. And my parents didn't know this because they grew up in a whole different country. They grew up in a whole different world. They was busy just trying to make a living. So it was like me finding all these things by myself, not knowing somebody to connect with teachers that would help me or me starting to look into people that were doing their revolution, having like Malcolm X, Martin Luther King. Mm -hmm. But looking at them, I was like, they don't look too much... I mean, they look like me, but I can't compare with them because they don't speak Spanish. They in an English country and they were African-American, were brought here a different way. My parents decided mm -hmm. to come here for. So I started just looking into deep and trying to find stuff. And there wasn't so many Dominicans that I could look into. So I started looking to the people that were closer to us, Puerto Ricans. Mm -hmm. started looking into the young lords. I started looking to justice movements or social movements that were happening to the Black Panthers. And that even brought the desire of me joining the gang that I joined. Because when I read what they were supposed to stand, they were supposed to unite the people. They were supposed to bring people of different race together. And me growing up in the 90s, there weren't too many groups where I could join. Mm. You started doing this research about what would bring people together as a teenager? And that was another one that my mother said that it was a gift and a curse. Because no matter what choice I went and places that I went, people will always come around me. And that's why I told you it was like a gift that I have that was passed down from my mom where everybody in my family could connect to me. I could be mm -hmm. the one in a place where people are not getting along and find a common ground for everybody. And it's something I do naturally. It's not a gift that something that I got to think about. It's just something that happens to me to do it. And my brother says it, one of my brothers says it to this day, you always mm -hmm. trying to keep people together. Sometimes people don't want to be together. And I'm like, no, Sometimes people don't know that they need each other. Mm. That is the difference. Mm -hmm. That is. I really like your perspective. Thank and you. I can tell you've gained it through hard times. I gained it through hard times, but I also um, gained it through seeing the good in people. Mm. Seeing that there is taking a chance is to learn that, hold on. Why is this person so angry? What happened? Is something deeper? They would not. Humans are naturally not born like this. Yes. You no know, people say no. Who, humans are naturally evil. I believe the opposite. Humans are naturally good. We all born with that good. And things in the world, life, the storms of life changes and makes us a different way. You understand? And that's why in prison I get made it because I would never deny food to nobody. So even the guys that were using whatever they get for drugs or were using it um, to deal with the situation that were in there would catch habits just to escape their world, I would give them food. And they'll come into my room or to my cell and ask me for something and I'll open my locker and they'll see I it's my last soup. And they're like, I'm not taking your last. I'm saying, you, this is not my last. Where this one came, more are going to come. So here, just take it. And everybody was like, you're in prison. Why are you so good to people? One time I was told, listen, you need to change how you are because if not, 
people are just going to take advantage of you. For me, it did the opposite. It did. For me, it helped me not wall down to people that would not let open up to other people. I will have guys come tell me story or just break down with me. I will have guys see me and not have nothing and they share the little bit that they have. So, and sometimes you'll hear so many stories about prison, but people won't tell you how people become family in there. Because I went through so much drama. You're away from your real family. Some of them are away from their kids. Some of them are, are in there that are innocent. Mm-hmm. That were part of the system that were tricked into it and that try to be honest. Mm-hmm. You do not fit the stereotype. You are a generous, gentle soul. Did you ever feel like a victim of your circumstances? Um. I have, but everybody tells me stop crying and almost man up. You understand? Yeah, uh-huh. you would deal bad car, people would deal worse. You could deal with it. And that's why it has become uh, almost a calling to show that, yeah, I could have done it through all the bootstrap. Yeah, I could go through be a rose that grows out of concrete, but why do I got to grow out of concrete? Why can't I just have a background where it's nice soil or a little better soil? Yes, I might not have the perfect soil or that I get a little bit more water because there's in these places where water and sunlight is all around mm-hmm. and these kids never know the world. Like, I had that first fight or the argument when I was six years old. I have met people that have grown in different places that will tell me they never had a fight in their life. And people in my neighborhood would tell you, before we hit teenagers' years, we all had some physical contacts in school. Not at home, most of us, in school, we end up fighting some way, somehow. So it's the, mostly the environment influence in your life. Yes, and yeah. I think it's almost all systematic. It's mm-hmm. all deeper than what I could have seen. This season is brought to you by Defy Ventures. They are a national nonprofit with a beautiful vision of cutting recidivism in half by leveraging entrepreneurship to increase economic opportunity and to transform lives. Defy's programs are helping currently and formerly incarcerated people across this country defy the odds by providing pathways that lead to employment, entrepreneurship, and a successful re-entry. Please visit Defy's website at defyventures.org and sign up for their mailing list to stay in the loop. Links to Defy's website and social media can be found in the show notes. So you said your first fight was when you were six, and then when you were 16 you went to help uh, rob a drug dealer, which the audacity of the drug dealer to call the police, I don't even understand that one, but whatever. Is that the only reason you were incarcerated or did anything happen again? So, yes. So I went into a prison and I ended up getting sentenced to 16 months or four years. Well, I was part of my gang and my gang in prison was not big. So I definitely became 
somebody different in there to represent my gang because it was like, oh, you become this or you become that or you can't represent your gang. But my gang was my family to me. It wasn't a gang. These were just a group of kids that were all lost with me, that we ate together, that even though my mom had food in the house, I wasn't going to leave him in the street. So I go sleep in a roof with him. I mm. mean, these kids, they had sometimes a worse home than I did. They didn't even have a parent that even cared about it. So most kids that join gang, in my experience, they all looking for love. They're looking for anybody that joins a group, a place where to accept, to be accepted. And that's where we learn how to be accepted. We kids trying to be men in a world that we don't know nothing about. And most of the time, people can't relate with us because they don't know our pain. Or mm-hmm. They grew up in a different environment. Most of our parents were immigrants. They grew up in different country, and they didn't know that we was going to come to a world where your skin color was going to matter. Yeah, right. That the darker uh, you was, the less accepted you was. Even though, don't get it wrong, in those countries that we come from, there's racism, but it's not the racism as your race standing out. It's more class. Mm-hmm. So you were dealing on many fronts. You were dealing with racism and classism and xenophobia and all these different systemic problems were like almost squeezing you weren't they? Hmm. So in in prison, I ended up becoming known and being able to react first made me fear and respect it. But at the same time, made me respect it because I was able to give people stuff. So it made me almost like people kind of like loved me and supported me because they seen the compassion, but they also knew that if the wrong thing was said or um, you came at me the wrong way, I could react with violence. So So how did you get rid of this violent streak? What happened? Was it during these four years? Was it afterwards? Was it once you got out? Was it a it was afterward because when I got out, I was labeled um, for my gang OG. That means um, old gangster. And I was given the highest position at the moment that was. So now I'm a 22 years old and coming to home from prison when I went and I was 18. So I didn't really even get to graduate from high school, even though in school I was always getting into fight. My grades were always seemed to be up. I was a 80 and 90 average student. Mm-hmm. So because I was able to remember stuff that was said in class. So if I had mm-hmm. to read it, I couldn't remember it. So my class that were the, um, that I did the worst was language art. Mm. Because it had to do with writing, with rem- but science, math, I could remember everything. I could take pictures of it and remember it. So I was able to excel in those classes, but in other classes I wasn't. So to make the story short, I went to prison, but I did end up getting my GED because I wasn't able to graduate because the year I was going to graduate, I ended up going to prison. And it was something funny that people said I did end up graduating to the school hard not. And it became gladiator. And it made me, prison made me a little bit more cold to the world. It did. In a way it did. But one thing that I did said to myself when I did go to prison the first time, I said, prison is not going to rob me for who I am. So I didn't let it change the person that I was, the compassionate person that wanted to help other or to stand up for injustice. So now I come home, they give me this label. All the kids that I had left that were 13, 14, I was 16, 17, and everybody wants to be 
part of the gang that I am. Everybody felt like it was family. So everybody in the neighborhood started going, but what happens in the gang culture in New York is that people join the gang to the people they are closer to. So they were brothers that were closer to this group and brothers that were closer to this group, cousins that were closer to this group, and now they at war with each other. So now I had a friend that was my friend in junior high school, and his brother ended up being part of the rival gang, and I and my brothers ended up being in the gang that I was in. So now me and him, we were still always had our friendship, always had our loyalty to each other. Um, now that my gang started growing, we end up, there's a neutral area where we live in New York where the gangs are all cool with each other. This area, we're not going to fight this area. We all live, we grew up with this area. So this area is neutral ground. Well, one night an argument started to make the story short. The argument led to older guys arguing with the younger guys that were under me. These same guys were the guys that used to bully me when I was younger. So I decided to tell him, okay, in the street codes, you almost use violence for everything. So we decided, I decided to tell him if they wanted to fight me because the kids were too young to fight them. One of the guys from the opposite gang said, don't worry about it, just bring it to the guns. Anybody any age could shoot a gun. We could just ha um, have a shootout. Mm -hmm. so one of the kids goes, grabs a sword or a shotgun and he gets it and he pulls it out, takes it out. And he almost froze because he seen it was on April 21st, summer, and he seen the, um, that crowd stopped. So um, he went back, he took the gun. But now me being in the position that we are, there's a rule in, in, in the streets where you don't um, show a gun and not use it. If you bring it out, it's supposed to be used. So now oh. me being their leader, and not knowing what I was doing, not knowing who I was leading, I was still blind myself, decided to tell them, bring the gun back. The kid to bring the shotgun back. But at that moment, my friend David pulls me to the side and say, everybody's drunk. Let's handle this tomorrow when everybody's not drunk no more. You know, this is just a silly argument. If people want tomorrow when nobody's drunk, we could fight one-on-ones. Like mm -hmm. one-on-ones is one from one group and another one from another group. And They'll fight it out, and whoever wins that group ends up winning. And or the people in whichever group have dislike for each other, you just let them fight one on one with each other. But at that moment, my pride was in the way. Mm. And I was told three times that night not to go to that situation. I was told by the younger guys under me, we can handle that. I was told by my mom, stay home that night. And then I was told by the girl that I was with in a relationship. Don't go to that area. Mm. But I had pride issues and I said, I gotta handle this because these are the same guys that used to, and I cannot leave these kids alone and feel like they're abandoned. I'm, I'm the person that I look up to. I can't mm. leave. So when the gun, David pulled me to the side, I said, David, no, we gotta handle this. The kid came with the shotgun. It was a sort of shotgun and it was already, um, the, the bullet was in the chamber. So I took the gun from him. I'm going towards the crowd, and in my head, I'm going to shoot it in the air just to make everybody disperse, and the gun was used. So we would not be seen like, oh, we was cowed. Mm -hmm. Well, I told you, me and David were childhood friends. In junior high school, before we both even joined gang, we was always together. David was um, like 
what we call the pretty boy. He was a guy with blonde hair. He was a lighter skinned Dominican and mm -hmm. all the girls like him. I was the guy that was always fighting. So I was like his bodyguard and he was, mm -hmm. he was like the Casanova. So <laughs> that day David decided that he was gonna be the one who will stop everything by being a peacemaker and went to take the shotgun off my head. And it took his life. I seen David die right in front of me. It's in this moment when I could tell you. So that's why it's my giving my curse because I could picture everything happening again. Oh, was it like in slow motion in your head, huh? Yes. Every time I speak about it, I could relive the moment. Mm. Oh, so David taking the shotgun from my hand. It took his life. But one at the same time, one of the other guys was running towards me. And I turn around and pointed at him. He starts running away and I run up to him and he's on the floor and said, don't shoot me. I don't end up pulling the trigger on the, on the shotgun and it didn't have no more bullet, but one of the kids that was under me ended up stabbing him. When that happened, my world came down because it was something that I could never picture, something that I will never think, but we never was trained how to use a gun. We mm -hmm. never we would buy guns in the street just because the group that had the guns had power. And we mm -hmm. was always outnumbered because the other gang was bigger and well better known and better established. So gun was the ones that made us seem stronger. So we just knew how to pull a trigger in a gun. Some mm -hmm. of us would go deep into it and learn how to clean them, how to take care of them. But yeah led me to going on a run because I didn't know what to do. And they mm. only didn't let me going on a run because I didn't know what to do. It was because everybody was telling me, they're not going to listen to you. They're not going to believe it was an accident. So I ended up running for six months. And my, in my well, I only had eight months that I was home from the prison. So now I ran for six months. So I only had a year in the street, only seen one birthday before I went back into prison. Mm. I'm facing 25 to life. But the thing is where the police um, end up catching me, I turned myself in basically because they went out to Florida to look for me. And when they did run into the house, they said, if you resist the arrest or try to run, we're gonna arrest everybody that's in the house with you. So I said, all right, I'll turn in. Now, when I get to the prison, they tell me, we know it was an accident. We know he was your friend. We know that y'all grew up together. We know there's two stories with people saying that he killed him. Some people saying that it was an accident. Um, we had one of your friends and she was very loyal to you because she didn't want to tell us nothing. But listen, we could help you. We could help you if you tell us the story and how it happened mm -hmm. and we could prove that it was an accident. We need your side of the story. So can you write the statement? So I write the statement. They do a video also um, interview and I give it to them. Well, when they tell you, be careful what you say or whatever you say will be used against you and can be used against you, it was used against me. I was charged with murder in the second degree instead of manslaughter of being an accident or being charged with a weapon. Even so, though they told you what they did. They told me that they knew it was an accident. They told me that me, they knew that me and they were friends since high school, knew that we had grown up together. 
and knew that we would, even though we was part of rival gang, that we were still very close friends. So it's just more important that they put a gang member behind bars. Yes, especially one that just had came from prison, especially someone that already oh. was laboring as one of the big guys in the gang. Oh, Andy, that's so sad. And you didn't have any lawyer to consult with? Um, at the time, uh, they told me, if you get a lawyer, we can't help you. Because when the lawyer comes, we can't help you the way we want to help you. So we can't get you a lawyer. But if you want a lawyer, get a lawyer. And I'm like, um, it's going to be what it's going to be. So I could trust these people. Still me being a person that I believe that cops generally were good or people still wanted to help. I gave the story and that ended up being. Then um, I end up getting a lawyer. And I tell the lawyer what happens, but they change the whole thing. And when I do end up going to trial, it end up getting to a mistrial, and the judge offered me 15 years for the gun. But what happened that we had a mistrial was the DA was holding evidence that um, the shell that came out of the shotgun had David's DNA, and also that David was drunk that night. He was past the alcohol limit. So we didn't have this evidence until we went to trial and the DA mm. had to give it up. So the judge had to call a mistrial. Mm -hmm. But um, the lawyer was telling me now that I had to, it was almost like finding, it was going to be my story against their story. And if my lawyer could paint the better story, then they will believe the story that it was. And mm -hmm. then another thing that we don't learn is that the law is a whole different language. Yeah. They have different words that mean different things and change the whole thing. So you think they're charging you with this, you don't know what they're charging you with. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, um, an incident close to mine had happened in New York and Long Island where um, an African-American was um, defending his home and some young um, Caucasian kids wanted to attack his kid and went to his house. And when they went to his house, um, they approached it. They were they 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 had weapons, and he the and the gun ended up going off, and he ended up killing one of the kids. And he ended up getting uh not that much time for the thing because it was in his house. But at the same time, he was a little bit from a wealthy area and had done got some money. Mm. I started looking into um the law myself, and when I found um illegal a she, basically, she led me into becoming a born-again Christian. Mm. And that's when I decided that I couldn't live to life. And I started mm -hmm. living for what Christ, what Jesus Christ taught. And from there, I started just changing my weight and learning how to deal with my anger. So that led to where you go, where I learned how to deal with my anger. I learned what Jesus taught, that treat others how you want to be treated. It doesn't mm -hmm. mean they're going to treat you the way you treat them. Mm -hmm. It's still your obligation how you're going to treat others. It's not, mm. that, it's not the obligation to react the same way to your treatment. Andy, your story is so beautiful and brutal at the same time and such an inspiration. So I want to ask you one more question but my dog is in here bothering me. So I'm going to let her out real quick so she doesn't start making a bunch of noise. Hold on a minute.
Come on, let's go. What breed is your dog? She is um, a cow dog. She's half cow dog, half black lab. <laughs> I understand because my time in prison this time around, I became a dog trainer. Oh, um, you did? Yes, they got a awesome. puppy behind bar and we train labs. You and do? Yes, we see that la black labs are the most labs you'll get when the labs get mixed together. But that's where I learned my compassion. So I learned how to read people's la body language, training these dogs that were going to wound the veterans. Because in New York, you can't, um, the person that runs the program, she don't let you train them with clickers. It's by your command. So you got to connect with the dog. It oh, I like that. What it have with the dog. So I had a dog named Champ. And she was what they call um, low, um, low confidence, where she gets scared around her world. Mm -hmm. So any little thing, noise. And I have, I've, if you can hear my voice, my voice is already deep. So I had to learn how to change my voice for her. I had to learn how to um, speak in a low pitch and everything. So she would let me know when I was getting angry because she will follow all my commands, but she will not take my treat. So now it started helping me become aware of what my feelings were. That was one of the biggest things that helped me how to um, know my anger, know what other people were. When people sometimes tell you, no, I'm okay, but really they hurt but you can see it only in their body language, the words in their mouth and their body language do not. She helped me learn how to see that. And that was one of the only program that was voluntary. That is incredible. I love that story, Andy. The gift of dogs and their unconditional love and their super attentiveness to us teaches us about our own emotions and ourself. I totally see that. I can relate to that with my own dog. I'm sure most people can with their pets. Wow. So you became a trainer. Do you train now too? It's hard to find um, jobs in it, but it was a passion that I want to do. And it's a passion that I have for starting a nonprofit. Mm -hmm. And maybe even a dog business because people see their dogs as, um, they have taught us to see dogs because of their breed and their temperament. And I believe that every dog got his own personality. Oh, yeah. It's something that I want to teach people that most of the time, the misbehavior that your dog does were taught by you directly or indirectly. You try to bring, it's bringing people into, it's bringing these beautiful animals, our best friend into our world where their world is totally different and expect them to know how to behave. That's so and true. Some things. It's almost like people be like, why my dog is always jumping on the, um, no, why my dog is always jumping on people when they come in? Well, when he's a puppy and he jumps on your leg, you're going to pet him. Now you're teaching him that it's good to jump up on people. Mm -hmm. So in his language where the words coming out your mouth don't mean nothing because all he does is read body language. Exactly. Know what it is. And it's almost like, this is why I want to start the nonprofit. It's kids that are thrown into foster homes. It's kids that they haven't, haven't been around that and become part of the system all the time that people say, oh, this is a bad kid. This is the kid that makes bad choices. But you don't know where he's coming from. You don't know why he's speaking with this anger, with this pain. Yeah. Every relationship he had had in his life, adults have let him down um, willingly and unwillingly. 
So it's the same thing with these dogs that end up in shelters. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So now I figure that the dogs and people could relate. So it's almost getting, starting a nonprofit where I take dogs from shelters and have foster kids treat them. But most of us, all these foster kids can have a relationship that's unconditional when they train these dogs. So now I they'll love get- this idea so much. They get to know what's a real relationship because that's where I learned how to have a real relationship with these when I learn from these dogs. Andy, that's just a genius idea. Two hurting creatures coming together to help heal each other. And the kids would end up teaching these dogs proper manners because most dogs that end up in shelters is because they've never been housebroken. Uh They um, are reactive in a certain way where they bark at certain things because they related with a trauma that they had or with something that bothers them. Most of the time when they bark and they're trying to protect or they're trying to tell you, I'm scared. Oh, we could, we could talk a lot about that. I have so much I would love to talk to you about that. But I'm wondering, is this a concept or an idea you got through Defy? Because I know at some point you came in contact with Defy. Was this in prison? Was this out of prison? Did they help shape this idea so that it can become, you can start seeing the fruit of it soon? So the puppy program was one of the programs that changed me, but Defy was another one of the programs that changed me. At first, it was friends that I had met that I was in another prison that I was always looking for things to better myself. And in prison, there wasn't that much. But when programs came out like that, we thought about entering and I didn't want to have a business. I never wanted it. So, I, but I said I want to start a nonprofit. I want to be able to help people. So I got into it with a nonprofit. But then they have a rule where you have to have a business, and that's where my business idea came from. That attached to my nonprofit, where I wanted to have a camera and train people's dog, but also be their dog sitter for at least two hours a day. So now I can learn your dog's personality and show mm-hmm. you why your dog does the behavior that he does, but record him and always at least once a month or once a week, sit down with you and show you why your dog is reacting with this, show you the emotion that your dog is going through it at the same time. So it became that I wanted to start like a pet sitting training dog program um, called um, Love Your Best Friend. Because your dog is your best friend, but we don't love them because we don't understand them. We try to change them into our world instead of learning sometimes that we have to change some of the things we do. Yes, so true. Getting into trouble, it wasn't that I wanted to do bad things. It was I was born at that in New York City. So we'll figure Mm -hmm. out the things that almost were people would see danger, we say, we saw excitement. Like mm-hmm. going on top of a subway and act like we was on a surfboard was our way of playing. I can't imagine that. I'm glad your mom didn't witness that. No, that she didn't. Just tell her, I'm going to the park across the street. But that park was just the, um, the ground where we'll unite and we'll mm-hmm. go our own ways. So my mom didn't know that I wasn't in the park. So question about the dog. Did the dog help you come to better understand yourself and your own emotions? Were you able to connect more once you saw the dog reading you or loving you unconditionally, no matter how you acted or reacted? 
It did. And that's something I already knew about those because of TVs and movies like um, mm-hmm. 101 Dalmatian. And my favorite Disney movie is uh, The Tramp. Um, Lady and the Tramp. Lady and the Tramp. And mm-hmm. it was always, I always dream about having a dog. We wasn't able to have a dog because it was six boys in a small apartment. So I was never able to have a dog. So I always had a passion with dogs and knew that compassion. So just connecting with the dogs show me that, but also Puppy Behind Bar trains dogs for wounded veterans and they bring them in for 16 days to train them how to connect with the dog. I seen one of our veterans come in that served our country for 24 years, come in where he was scared of even going anywhere. So he had to go through prison and when he made it into side of the prison that they made him go through metal detector, his body was tense. You could see that this man was shaking and everything. But as mm. soon as one of the dogs lay on his feet, his whole body changed. And as soon as he took that dog, he was telling the story how he um, he didn't go out his house. How he was he lived in Boston in Massachusetts, and he lived in a cabin and only lived with the with the lights off inside his house. He was scared to go outside because he wasn't scared what would happen to him. He was scared what he would do to a person. Oh, no. his mind Because he was a chief in the Navy and he was one of the person that had to, um, he started at dissolving bombs and then he became the chief and he had to go and see where people got blown up or where they find bomb and figure out where the bomb was, what it was made out of. And mm. he's many dead soldiers and everything that his mind was always on defense. Mm, what a beautiful program to help so many hurting hearts. I love that. I love that. We're all hurting and we can all help each other. And with the fire too is their program. Yes, they teach you about entrepreneurship, but they teach you about healing yourself. And that is the biggest part of the program that People would go into the program knowing that I want to start my own business, but there were stages where you had to um, deal with the things that undefeated beliefs, beliefs that you believed that we could stop you, believe that we thought that because now we had a felony, we couldn't go nowhere in life. We was trapped on a nine to five and not being able to do something. Mm-hmm. So it helped you, the fight helped you write down your emotions, your trauma, and deal with it. But in a way where people were like, oh, we're starting a business. But we didn't. We learned that a business is just not the product you sell. It's, it's the message that you send behind it, the compassion that you have, and how people connect to your story. So definitely Defy was one of the other programs that just changed my world. And also being able to have knowledge, to yes. be having education when I end up joining NYU. So NYU got a prison program in that same place where I ended up joining the fire. Excellent. And this is how I started learning about the system, the mm-hmm. system that can be trapped, the things that I was like, whoa. So it was like the deck was already set against me. It was. Like, okay, somebody put it this way. It's like playing Monopoly, but I'm not getting all the money that they're supposed to give me. I don't even get none of the money. So every time you pass go, you get no money, no properties. When I start, I start with no money. So oh, that's a great analogy. 
Perfect. Yeah, starting with the five hundred dollars that you get. Yeah. But some people start with the five hundred. Some people start with three with three. I mean, five thousand. Some people start with three thousand. Some people start with nothing at all. That's a great picture of equity, isn't yeah. it? Mm-hmm. So what is what was your major? What is your major at NYU? My major right now. I'm trying to finish my um, associate in sociology. I want to mm. go as far as getting my bachelor's as even getting my PhD because I want to show that I'm the best subject to showing you what the system does, but I also mm-hmm. want to connect how it affects the whole community. When one person goes to prison, how it affects families financially. I don't think they talk about the burden that it is on people's family financially Mm -hmm. to travel to these places because I don't, and I have learned that California is almost like New York. When people go to prison, they send them to the prisons farther away from where they live. Yes, they do. So you can't visit your family, right? You can't visit, you lose that human connections. Mm -hmm. Um, Isolation when they put you in the box with almost the systems inside prison separate you by race. Inside there, and it's something that is also run by those people that run the prisons. They give you, they give little areas where only these groups could be in, so they could control these groups to know what is happening in these areas. But now nobody could be accepted in these groups. They become almost little cults. So the prison system is it this way in New York as well? Is a microcosm of the larger society with smaller gangs and in fighting in a way it's almost the same but in a way it tells you even if you choose to be different you outnumber so say um i'm one that gets along with everybody but a person that gets along with everybody in prison is seen like a spy because oh no they're not trusted they're not trusted oh we don't know who, where your loyalty lies at. Ooh, that's, you're right. Cause like in the greater society at large, then they really want to put you in a group. Are you Republican or are you Democrat? Mm-hmm. Are you this? Or are you that? What is your skin color? What is your religion? Like mm-hmm. we're wanting all these labels for people. And if you don't fall into one of these categories neatly, can we trust you? We don't know where you stand. You can't just have a mind of your own. and see good in this group and in this group. And I can see how that would play out dangerously inside because it's dangerous on the outside too. And and then in New York, it's almost like, you're going to almost connect with people that are kind of your culture. That's the ones you're going to hit up more. Mm -hmm. But now it's almost like they separate you and it's almost like you're a traitor at even the offices tells you, oh, don't you belong with that group? What are you doing with that group? And you Hispanics, so why are you with the African-Americans? Oh, Oh, my. It's almost like I had a friend. um, He only had, he grew up upstate New York in an area that's very, um, um, was very white. So he he only had one black friend, and his black friend couldn't go to a certain neighborhood. They used to end up beating him up. So now when he come to prison, he don't come in with that because he know what his friend went through. Well, the guys used to tell him, well, you're not even 
white enough because you always want to be with the spicks and the niggas because, excuse my language, because you don't want to be with us. So you are sold out to your race because they wanted him. But when they needed him to speak to any group, that's who they ran to. So it's only like you was valued to her. And even the officers would tell them, oh, you one of these lovers, you one of these. And the kid was put on the wall. But him being educated and getting knowledge and joining NYU had a brighter mind. But sometimes you have these bias that were put in you that you don't even know that you have. Oh, how messed up our system is. I'm glad we're having this conversation so that more people can have it and more and more and it can just spread, right? Yes. Um, I have no doubt that you will go as far as you possibly can in your education. I see you becoming such a beautiful force for good in people's lives. You have so much to give. It's incredible. Mm -hmm. You're inspiring me so much right now. My heart is so full. Thank you. And that's all I want to do is pull out to certain people. Yeah. It show that every story matters. It does. Yeah. It honestly yeah. does. Well, I'm yeah. curious how you, okay, did you do your, you didn't do 25 years. How, tell me your parole story, how you got out. I end up, um, so after I got a mistrial, the judge ended up offering me 15 years because before that, the DA only offered me um, 18 to life was the lowest, 20 to life. Everything had life behind it. And I knew that me taking anything with life was going to put a, um, was going to have the system controlling me always. And, it was, and in prison, you could go in, but you don't never know when you're going to come out because you might not be a violent person, but prison turns you violent in ways you have to defend yourself and ways you have to do to survive. Because certain things that are seen weakness will make you a victim. Mm -hmm. So, um, and also it was because I wanted to prove that I didn't kill my friend. Mm -hmm. I was not going to feel guilty to something that I did not do. I already had done it too many times in my life and I wasn't going to do it no more. So the judge offered me 15 years and it was for the gun. So I ended up taking 15 years for the gun. The gun, the reason why, because that statement that I wrote, I already has showed that I had possession of the weapon. Even mm -hmm. though I didn't own the weapon, even though I didn't bring the weapon to the place, me just having the weapon in my hands for a few seconds was considered mm -hmm. me having possession of a weapon. Mm. So they gave me 15 years and they sentenced me to the weapon, firing off and taking my, um, David's life. But what also changed me the most was when it was time for me to get sentenced, his mom had a statement read that she didn't know what story to believe. Did I kill her son? I didn't. But that she was forgiving me because she was a Christian and that's what Jesus taught forgiveness. And that's how I know to many people in my scene that it could be luck. I could have believed in something else, but to me, that's why Jesus is the way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, you had, you saw the impact it made in other people's lives. And so it couldn't help but impact you. Yeah. I can see that. So did you end up serving all 15 years or did you get to early release? So I got end up getting early release because being part of the puppy program, if you in the puppy program for two years and you have to take that test and pass it. So it's a 300 questions test that you take in, um, in three hours, but it's questions where about stuff that me and you was talking about. 
because dog training is not in a box, so it's not technical questions. It's things where you have to think about how are you going to solve a problem. I ended up passing it, and it made me eligible to get six months out of my bid. They didn't give you the six months for doing all this. It made you eligible for them to decide now if they was going to let you go early. And also, um, being part of NYU, if you have 24 credit, makes you eligible for you to, and these are only for people that are considered violent cases. Between 12 years and four months. Yeah. Um, yes. And how did you end up in California? Change um, of scenery? No. <laughs> My brother escaping the system that we grew up, escaping him knowing that his brothers were known in the street for being a tough guy, and he almost falling into the same thing, ran into the Navy. He did. He became, uh, he joined the Navy at the age of 18. And most of it, he remember me, his adult, um, turning into a teenager that I was in prison. And most of my family felt that because of my compassion, the person that I am, I never belonged in a place like that. Mm -hmm. So my little brother, when I was getting ready to come home, he said, you could come live with me. At the time he was living in North Carolina, so he was doing all the paperwork trying to get me to, and to try to get a person to a different state to start in a new place is so much of a challenge in the really? system. Really? And you gotta prove this. And um, he ended up getting stationed in California and he started doing the paperwork and everything, getting letters and letters from my professor and from my mom, and they were able to parole me. And they didn't tell me I was getting parole until three days before I went home that I was getting parole to California. So we was already making plans for me staying in New York, but we knew if I went back to my own neighborhood, <laughs> the challenge, the, um, the opportunity of me going back to prison were like 90%. Because mm -hmm. Only because even if I try to change the lifestyle that I was living or change everything, doesn't mean that people that are still living that lifestyle will let me change. True. So true. That and was really smart of you to go to it California. It was so much smart. It was so much that my brother decided to put his, change his whole world and take me into his, because I was a stranger. Uh -huh. I grew up in prison. He grew up in the street, even though uh -huh. we connected by blood. I yeah. was a stranger, and he decided to take me and his wife. Her compassion of like, your brother didn't have a chance. We need to help him. What love. Oh, you're so lucky to be surrounded by love. Yes. Are you still taking NYU classes online? No. Um, I end up joining Southwestern College over here and okay. the Restorative Justice with their Restorative Justice program. Awesome. Restorative justice. I love that title. I could talk to you forever about that, but we're, we're getting close to our ending time and I have four more questions for you. So um, I have this set of three closing questions that I ask everybody, but I want to ask you one more question. If you could give any advice to the general public about the justice system or formerly incarcerated people, what would you want to tell them? Just listen. They are little kids. Most are, they're just people crying out for help. Mm -hmm. Just listen, and you just listening to somebody means so much. Just mm -hmm. a smile will change the world to people. It's almost like um, I met a woman that went in there, and she used to get Bible study, and she said, if my husband would have been alive, I would never meet none of y'all. 
because I was a school teacher. I didn't know nothing about this, but my husband died and I decided that I wanted to speak to people about what kept me safe. And she went in there and it showed a, per a woman that you would have thought that her, my world and her world would not connect. We end up connecting because she had opened her heart. Beautiful. So just a little bit of compassion goes a very far away. It sure does. Well, we've made it to your closing questions. And these are three easy, relatively easy questions. What is your one tip to make the world a better place? If you don't have nothing to live for, find something to die for. It's almost like something that Tupac said and always, always motivated me because it's easy to die. But to live for something, to try to survive, to change something, to keep it going, to give it life, takes so much more. Mm -hmm. And when you find something to live for in life, life has a meaning. Those yes, who are looking for meaning in life, just find something to live for. Mm -hmm. Beautiful advice. What are you the most thankful for right now? A second chance. Mm. A second chance is almost like I was telling my girlfriend yesterday that I don't get mad being stuck in traffic. I get amazed that I'm 36 years old and just learned how to drive and I could drive the car. And I'm just happy that I'm able to drive with a window down and be in a vehicle where I'm not handcuffed. Mm -hmm. I told her when I first got outside clearance where I was able to go out the prison without no handcuff that my body was shaken, that I couldn't control it because the emotion that it was going through inside, wow. I didn't want to react not having handcuffs in my hands. So just being able to ride in a car with a window down in the heat of California, to me, is like... Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That is a gift. What is your favorite quote? I guess it will be, I guess... Um, it goes back to Tupac because I was definitely very influenced by his music and I always had the same battle that he had inside. It was like you want to change the world, but you do feel like you by yourself and it's mm -hmm. almost like thug life. The hate that you give every little influence Fs everybody. Mm -hmm. So to battle that in the street, I was called Bullet and Bullet was a name that was given to me because of one of Tupac's movie where he plays um, this um, this guy called um, Tank. But Bullet is the other character that comes from prison. And um, my friend told me I was going to end up like a bullet in a gun. Or oh, after you use a bullet, it's dead. But I decided to change the name of Bullet to Born to Unite, Loyalty and Love in Every Thug's Life. Mm. And I just give you a breakdown of thug life, meaning that the hate that we give any little children will F all of us up. So I understand that if you show loyalty and love to somebody that never had it, you'll make a difference in their life. Because remember when you asked me, were there people that it was sorry that there weren't people that reached out to my life? There were people that reached out into my life and took a little moment to show me that. Mm -hmm. There is love and compassion and that a lot of my choices weren't my choices because if I knew better, I would have done better. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Maya Angelou, for that one. Huh? Yes. You've quoted some 
really incredible people. And it just makes me want to read Tupac's book even more, the book about his life. Do you feel that you've become a nonviolent person as opposed to the violent, aggressive person you were before? Do you see that change or do you still use violence and see the need for it? I mean, I won't say that I see the um, use for violence, but I still see the use for resistance. Resistance, that's a good word. Yes, yeah. I did have become a nonviolent. I did have become of what um, Martin Luther King preached, where, but we still have to resist something. We still got to go against the system yes. in a way where we're not hurting and becoming what the system is. Because it's so easy to become again, uh, um, become what you're fighting against. It's almost like Fidel Castro. Yes, it it's is. Always the greatest example that I see of becoming what you fought against. You fought to take away your country to free it, to do this and everything, and then you entrap your own people. Mm-hmm. So Excellent so reminder. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much for sharing your heart, for sharing your thoughts for sharing your advice um, and for your vulnerability i really appreciate it yeah and i still um people if they still want to see my struggle of a man that almost lived his whole life in prison and trying to go and work through the system and change it i always do um little videos on instagram good people could see my life we just have to see the good in each other and give each other the benefit of the doubt. Like you said, so many people are just wounded inside, wounded little kids, and they're reacting out of that wound, aren't they? Mm -hmm. I am so thankful I got to meet you, Andy. Thank you. Yes, and I will, and there's another book called, um, I think it's Invisible Lines, where people live intertwined in a moment in their life for a reason and our life connected for a reason yes yes even just me being able to have ears to listen to your podcast and listen to other people's story i am so grateful and what are you doing you're putting your little drop of the world goodness into the world i hope so i hope that's how it's seen yeah you shared a couple articles with me. Is it okay if I put those articles on your show notes page? It's okay, definitely. Okay. Writing was something that's super difficult to this day for me because of the way that I learned, but also because of the trauma that I had with it. Yeah, yeah, I imagine. Well, they were superbly written, and uh, I commend you for doing a hard, challenging thing and making the most of it and like winning at it. Like you're doing very good at it. Not only, I mean, you're not letting fear control you from what I can see. Thank you. Well, I wish you all the best in your continued success in your job and hopefully starting this awesome nonprofit and finishing your degree in restorative justice. You're going to do beautiful, wonderful things for people. Thank you. Thank you for giving me the opportunity just to say my story. Hopefully it touched one life. Andy's generous, gentle soul had quite the profound impact on me. 
Despite his life experiences, he is still an ardent believer that people are born good. And he chooses to see that good in people. And he tries to find common ground and he brings people together. I so admire that. This is a transformed man from the one who thought fighting was the answer to everything. I loved our surprise Benny Trail. We went down about dog training and learning how to read people by learning about dogs. I'm so thankful there are organizations who reach out to prisoners and give them chances to learn more about themselves, the world around them, and how to improve their lives. If this season is teaching us nothing else, it certainly is showing us that prison education programs have the capacity to be transformational and inmates are not lost causes. Just because you make a really stupid choice does not exclude you from growing and learning from it and improving your emotional, mental, or spiritual health. This is not the last you've seen or heard of Andy. He has so much to share with this world. Be sure and check out the links in the show notes to the articles that he's written. His story and the way he narrates it is just so compelling. I sat riveted as I was listening to him speak. No wonder people are drawn to him. Andy, I can tell you've taken it to heart and live what Tupac said. My aim is to spread more smiles than tears. May we all try to be the gift of happiness to someone else's life today, just as Andy has. Thank you for listening to Gramercy. Remember, there is no them, just us. See you down the road.